Hey there, party peoples. Uh, this is a bonus episode of Phil's time guesting on Oops All Monsters, which is a wonderful show where they talk about monsters from literary to video games to uh, tabletop games and uh, beyond. So I think you should go ahead and check out Oops All Monsters. It's a great show. And just for a taste, here is the two parts that Phil was on recently, just dropped right into our feed for you, for your convenience. And then once you're done, go uh, go head on over there. Go check them out. Anyway, uh, on with the show. Welcome to Oops All Monsters, the deadly unserious show about creatures, cryptids, and curiosities curated by two weirdos from wild and wonderful West Virginia. That weirdo with me when he's not trapping unsuspected wine critics in barrels of 72-year-old whiskey is not Gavin, but instead in a total change of format, our lovely friend of the show, Phil Keeling from... Pixel lit. Phil, how are you doing today? It's nice to talk to you. I'm I'm doing great. I'm I'm a a longtime fan, first time caller. <laughs> Major I was almost tempted from Greenville, South Carolina. <laughs> is is you you're in Greenville is yeah. where you are. That's cool. That's one of the places in South Carolina I know is a place. It is, it is. Um, it is indeed a, ball, a place. About all I can say. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's it's a lovely place. Um uh, but I would I, I cannot lie. It is definitely you roll your eyes when you hear one of those tourism board things where they're like the the South Carolina's little undiscovered town or whatever. <laughs> but, but it really is. It's one of those yeah. things that you, people you'll go. Have you, you heard about Greenville? You ever? And people go, oh, you've got to go to Gre- Greenville's wonderful. And you go, OK, whatever. And you show up and you're like, oh, actually, this place does kick ass. That's cool. So. Well, that's fantastic. I is uh, is one of your jobs specifically in Greenville, or do you live there for another reason? Because I do not remember since um, you you've been around different places, and so have I. Yeah, since, yeah. Uh, we I, I to, came here since for we a job. Scad yeah, together. Yeah, I, I came here for a job. Actually, how it happened was my my fiance and I met. Literally, we we went on our first date the week before quarantine for uh, the pandemic kicked Whoa. in. Whoa. And, wow. and so she had family uh, who lived in Pickens, which is this tiny little town in the foothills up here in South Carolina. We were living in Atlanta at the time. And she said, well, okay. we're both working from home. So there's this single wide up there that nobody's in. Uh, we could just play house for a little while and try this relationship out and, and isolate. And it was 40 minutes from Greenville. So on the weekends, we'd go to Greenville uh, because it had a waterfall and it's downtown. 
and that was something you could <laughs> yeah, do. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. And so we were just like, it's a, this opportunity popped up to come here for work. And I was like, yeah, let's let's just do that instead. Because neither of us were exactly well, grouping uh, in Atlanta. Well, good job on um, not becoming a Stephen King novel and testing out cohabitation uh, all at once with the with the uh, with the quarantine thing because I could imagine that not going super well. It you know? ab- it um, absolutely could have could have gone very badly. My wife know, literally yeah, ju- just told me she said I, I on the way there I thought this guy could kill me. I was like, yeah, you, yes. yeah, it could go great. Or Jack could become a very dull boy. You know, right. You know, exactly. you never, you never, <laughs> yeah. You never know. Um, I, I actually had, uh, well, you know what? Now that I, I, it's actually a lot more similar than I was thinking in my mind with my partner and I, they were, we had, but we had been together for a long time, but not having done cohabitation where, um, she was on the West coast in Los Angeles where I had been living. And then I came back here, you know, years uh, prior to help out with family stuff here in uh, Morgantown. And then um, COVID started to get really started to get really bonkers and LA particularly. And, you know, basically most of the big metropolitan cities got really wackadoo there for, a, a while, oh, yeah. and in the the in the rising boiling um, scenario of that, she found herself motivated to to GTFO. And uh, one thing about the um, relatively rural mountains is they're really good at an emergency. <laughs> if oh, if that emergency has to yeah. do with getting the fuck away from people, yeah, um, it's kind of why mountain people exist because they they. They would rather deal with the hardship of isolation than the hardship of uh, other souls being. Around. Oh, absolutely! It's a long, proud tradition, uh, especially <laughs> in the Appalachians. Yeah, we know all about that. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, uh, that's uh, well, that's very interesting. So, um, bef- so I obviously, um, Phil, you and I are familiar each other- with each other because. We, we were friends and had a ton of mutual friends when we went as together as grad students. Yes. The bizarre culture of grad students at the Savannah College of Art and Design in Savannah, Georgia, where it's yeah. also very hot, but definitely not the Appalachian Mountains. I'll say no, that. no, far totally from Totally different it. vibe. Yeah, yeah that, um, that Petri dish of, of geeks and film nerds. It was beautiful. <laughs> yeah, and, um, and subsequently... Uh, you and um, multiple entry onto the show collaborator um, of what Kevin Earhart. I don't know if he does, uses his name on the show. He must. But yeah. Ke- like Kevin, uh, your co-host and co-producer of your show, make Pixel Lit, if somehow anybody on our show still is not familiar with you guys, where <laughs> you review the novelizations of video games. Which is, I would describe from your perspective, maybe hit or miss with yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, a kind of, I don't know what you would describe your hit rate at, because it, the language that you guys use, tell me how, if you would describe this as accurate, is kind of, can be very squishy when it comes to, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down about a particular book. <laughs> There's a bizarre amount of nuance when you guys say that, like, oh, okay, this scholastic book is is less trash 
than right. than than that Dead Space book or whatever. There's a lot of relativity going on. Is it is that accurate? I would I would argue yes. I think I think that's what happens when you get a couple of film school guys talk to because at first it was just this this niche that I thought of that I said no one's doing this. This could be funny and weird and just different enough that we could you know carve out our own little hillside there. Uh, but then. It, purely through coincidence, it came to pass that Kevin and I were both very interested in adaptation and how yeah. things are. And, and and so suddenly we're having actually really nuanced, in-depth conversations about the, the, the fucking, you know, Guitar Hero novelization or something. I wish that existed. <laughs> it does not. Um, <laughs> I was I was going to totally go on faith that that was a thing that was real <laughs> and then you would review it. Like, I... I definitely listened to episodes of your show. I listened to the most recent episode that I believe um, Hot Cider was on. I'm sorry, I forget his his actual yeah Hot Cider uh, yeah name, yeah. but um, that was that was a very entertaining one. But I don't catch every episode. And if you had told me that you had recently done the Guitar Hero book, I would have been like, "Wow, what the fuck is the Guitar Hero book about?" I, I, well, <laughs> that's just it. We're like, it's not enough because uh, at first, obviously, our, our our more popular ones are the ones that. Uh, are, are, have franchises like Halo that are just like yeah absolutely they've got the big fan base and everything which makes sense but uh, more and more the way we've been going into it is we're looking for the really outlier kind of things like um, Shadowkeep which was the first ever video game novelization book about a game that no one knows anymore that does not exist uh, and we got to talk to the guy who adapted it and uh, he's like the king of a adaptations Alan Dean Foster and he yeah Al no I I did I did listen to I did lis listen to that one specifically because Alan Dean Foster is such a, a draw in, oh absolutely the original, the original aliens um, adaptations I mean he's yeah I like it, it is such a small sliver of of the of a Venn diagram inside of um, lowercase l literature, right? That you, there's there there really is a pantheon of a handful of people that you can get to come on a podcast and actually talk about. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, Alan Dean Foster is great, but it is it is a very very you know it's like talking to like a the greatest billiards player in the world. You know, what right. I mean, it's like very famous under an extremely rarefied set of circumstances. That's exactly it. Any anytime I find myself describing what we do to people who aren't part of either of our subcultures and uh and I'll and I'll I'll use examples like that and I'll go well we we interview people and and you remember Alien he wrote the he wrote the movie novelization for Alien and people always kind of react to so they go oh, oh okay yeah. so it's, it's a okay. polite but genuine oh that's that's <laughs> vaguely impressive yes that sounds Yeah like yeah 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 it's like when you're in college and your aunt says like he's so creative right, <laughs> right? it's where you, they're really trying to give you the most direct compliment that they can, and yeah. it, they're they're instead dragging your scrotum over like a weak fire. Absolutely, it's just I, like I was like, bless their heart, on. they are trying, you know. But man, <laughs> yes, yeah. And that's how you can tell Phil is in the quote unquote real South because he just used the um, prominent Deep South euphemism, bless their heart, <laughs> which is. Which doesn't quite get as far up here to West Virginia on the on the border with the with the Yankees, but um, it, yeah, you're, you're, it, you're, you're the in farther an down spot you go. up there. Yeah, I well, the thing is, in Morgantown, we're definitionally um, the North it, it, because of a thing that 
a lot of people don't like to remember from their history books called the Civil War. Right. And it is there it, West Virginia is by definition a Yankee state. But we get to we get to enjoy none of the privileges of being from a Yankee state, but we get to enjoy, enjoy all of the disparagement and stereotypes of uh, the deep South and Appalachia. It's wonderful. That's so funny. Cause <laughs> I never, I didn't know that. And I always thought it was funny. Cause, uh, whenever I listen to the show, uh, I'm reminded cause I went to school in Western Pennsylvania and the rust belt. And yeah, I, I'm reminded yeah. that, that, that as of the places that I have called home, you and I probably have more in common with the Rust Belt part of my life than uh, yeah, absolutely. the Deep South. Yeah, which is which is fascinating. And that you guys, I remember specifically, both you and Kevin were riffing on that in the Hot Cider episode because yeah. <laughs> you guys were talking about being from the very not related parts of Pennsylvania. Very much um, so. You know, e- Eastern so. Pennsylvania and Western Pennsylvania on a lot of levels could not be more different. Um, also, you know, it depends on how close you are to one of those cities. Yes. Um, but yeah, have you ever, are you familiar with the um, proposed uh, cologne colony or Commonwealth called Westylvania? Is, is this a thing that you're aware of? Because no. you know, feel, feel, feel free to Google it real quick. It was yeah. a proposed, it was a proposed colony in the, um, I believe seven, I believe late 1700s that essentially would have been a state like imagine the shape of California but a mirror image where the sock goes the other way, like Holy down to the left cow. instead of down to the right. And essentially it's everything. And I'll describe this to the, for the listener. It's essentially Pittsburgh and below of, of, of Southwestern Pennsylvania. And uh, then scoops out nearly all of West Virginia, except of some of the nonsensical panhandle shit that doesn't make any sense anyway. Right. And then the lower, East, the southeastern part of Kentucky, which in my mind is actually a much more culturally contiguous entity than than what we have in um, Pennsylvania, West Virginia and Kentucky as it is. Uh, Westylvania is one of those odd, like I, I want to get a high quality map of it and put it on my wall Absolutely. because, uh, because it, it has a, it has an internal logic to it that those people got that like n- n- the actual reality of the world will never get close to grasping. Um, I love that it go from, from Catanning all the way down to Southeastern Kentucky. Holy crap. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Culturally speaking, for those of us who spent a lot of time in Western Pennsylvania, yeah. it has yeah. way more in common with like West Virginia and that sort of thing than 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 Philadelphia, for example. Yeah, when you when you think that Pennsylvania is just a hilarious name for a character with bad teeth on Orange is the New Black, yeah. that is not that Pennsylvania is basically like West Westylvania the person. That, that is, is it is it is truly what it is. Well, we have marinated in the Marin to uh, a, a deeper degree than even Gavin and I usually do on some occasions. <laughs> the audience doesn't necessarily know that because I end up like cutting cutting so much of our um, ramblings and avunc- avuncular nonsense out of the show. But I should get to I, we should get to the business because we have some big chunky topics to discuss. Yes, we do. Um, so I'm going to do this a little bit of the scripted bit, and we'll hit v- villainous vocabulary and see if it stays in the show. So (laughs) we are here to, as we always are, delight and edify you with tales of mysterious monsters from 
mythology, film, literature, TV, as well as gaming from the console to the tabletop and beyond. On a rotating basis, each of us brings a monster into the shop. Reminder, check out the Instagram. It's what you think it is. And before we get into the meat of the show, we like to go into the rare and divergent parts of the English language that we like to call... And there's just a sting that goes there, and Gavin and I are in the habit of just, like, like singing the sting. And we always cut, we always cut that out Villain's vocabulary and the piece of vocabulary that i thought um might entertain you today phil is a word called erinaceous erinaceous yeah. it's spelled like the um celtic female name erin Mm-hmm. Followed by Anacius, E R I N A C E O U S. Feel free to make a guess if you want, but I won't uh, make you play a game if that's Aranacious. not your current mood. I mean, you're never gonna in million million years get it, so just go for the. Last I can't one, imagine I it's the obvious. It has something that's like just tenacious in an Irish way, like put a whiskey in you and you're ready <laughs> to fight off. Little, an yeah, you got a little bit too much Jameson in here, being a little bit Aranacious tonight. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I no, would, that, that can't be it. Yeah, it, I think if that was true, it would have somehow joined the Urban Dictionary of our common lexicon. But no, Aranacious is of or relating to hedgehogs. <laughs> of or relating to hedgehogs. Uh, I, did, did I don't have score the, the etymology on this one. I, I don't have the etym- I don't have the et- etymology in front of me. Uh, <laughs> I'll admit that I pulled out my 100 weird words at, from parade.com and just grabbed the first one that felt <laughs> like a, a chuckle. And, and here we are. Aranaceous of or related to hedgehogs. So if, if you dear listener um, run a hedgehoggery of some kind, <laughs> Or are some kind of Sonic the Hedgehog um, furry? You can steal that for your next username on TikTok or whatever you got. Aranacious. Amazing. Um, fa- fantastic. And that's about as complicated as I like that segment to be. So <laughs> um, today we are going to we're going to skip the intro to the topic of the imagine if you will section Mm -hmm. because we need some of that runway to get to this topic um the audience will already know what the topic is but the top phil i specifically thought of you when i i thought of this topic and then i thought who the fuck do i know might already have this like kind of half cocked in the chamber of their flintlock pistol and i thought well I've been looking to have Phil on anyway. I'll sh- take a shot in the dark and maybe um, this is one he will know because my guess would be that Phil's very familiar with the thing uh, of the John Carpenter variety. Yes. Um, which you've confirmed is the case. So, and you're, and you're a literary sort. So it seemed that it seemed that that Venn diagram might prove a shade of purple. So um, can you tell me, what is the not? What is the novella? Who goes there? Don't worry, I have all of the metadata about it. If you're <laughs> if you're worried about getting the facts, but what is who goes there? Uh, who goes there is a novella uh, by uh, I always want to say Joseph Campbell. It's but it's it's John Campbell. It's John. Yeah, it's John Campbell. Yeah. I think maybe it's John Campbell Senior or some it's shit. Junior. Sometimes they're junior okay junior yeah. john campbell jr who wrote it under a pseudonym because he was 
actually the editor of the magazine he was publishing it smart. in. Smart. Very um, smart. But anyway, I interrupted you as soon as you said uh, <laughs> any, anything it, it begins. of note or merit. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's it's uh, it was written in the 30s, uh, as I recall, and it is... Uh, it is the foundation upon which uh, the thing from another world and later John Carpenter's the thing um, were uh, uh, done. Uh, it was and and what's funny is that I have never seen the thing from another world, but what I've always heard and I did I have read this book, uh, but it was years and years ago and and the details that I distinctly remember and from what I uh, remember other people saying all the time is that uh, interestingly enough. John Carpenter's the thing. It's actually way more faithful to uh, the novella than uh, a thing from another world. Yeah. Yes. And, and this is something that we're going to go over, um, which is having, I, I, it was one of those things that I had in my pocket um, to, it's like, Oh, I should read that because I'm such a thingophile, I guess is a, a, a term of art I'm going to coin right now that, you know, and I just didn't get to it. It's one of my favorite things about doing this show uh, is that it gives me an excuse to go to the back of the cluttered drawer and go like, oh, I actually should do that thing I've been saying would be a, a good idea yeah. for seven years. I actually should read who goes there and not just like, um, you know, pontificate about it pointlessly. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 when I did, I was I was truly shocked how much, on some ca- some occasions, line for line pulls were from the 1938 uh, novella into the John Carpenter version. Uh, characters with the same name and the same job, literally doing and saying the same thing, pulled from the story. I was not expecting that. I was expecting that some of the essential uh, you know the i was i was expecting things like okay there's a the concern of that this thing is inside of my cohorts and comrades and i have to go through some mechanism of determining which ones are real and which ones are thing i thought that would be the part that translate translated i didn't think it would be that and so much uh so much other DNA of the story down to exact lines. Yeah. Um, but that's something that I, we'll cover that more specifically later on because um, so who's goes there, like I said, is um, by John W. Campbell Jr. It was actually published a bunch of different times, but it is um, it's publication history describes it as a 1938 science fiction horror And there's some confusion because it actually has been published in uh, versions that have some minor differences. There's like a really short version. There's a regular version, which I'm pretty sure is the version that I read for uh, for this. And there is a super elaborate version that has been um, recollected and reinstated and published as an entity called um, Frozen Hell. Colon, the thing from another planet that I have not read because apparently it reinstates a bunch of um, scenes and maybe even chapters from his original manuscript that he was trying to get out for forever. And then in the interim, he did the smart move of becoming a publisher of his own fucking magazine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. um, It's like, wait, you know, one of the, one of the great great ways to be a working actor is to become a producer. Yeah. (laughs) For instance, is uh, actually make your own shit and cast yourself. Amazing. You know, the Ghostbusters model works. 
Right. Um, <laughs> Funny that. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. When you have the means of production, you can kind of determine um, a lot of things about your own fates. Odd. So, uh, but that was only published for the frozen hell version was only published in 2019 and, um, audiences, I may tease that maybe I'll do something with that version. Once I get my, uh, hands on that copy, I might, I, I don't know. I might do something weird and creative that you guys will get to consume. We'll see. I, I only found but, out about it in research for this episode and I am absolutely ordering a copy. So yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, here's the, well, that's what I, that, you know, that's what I, I love this show. I love making this show, which is sounds like a self-aggrandizing thing to say. But I mean, I, I mean, ex- experientially, I love making the show because it actually does cause me to take my ADHD ass brain and go and do the homework that I yep. always think I should be doing. Like, well, you got to come up with something for this week. So watch something or read some shit. And then even if I only watch something and it's like, now I got to read 10 things about that fucking thing. And <laughs> it causes me to actually become someone who knows too much about these topics as someone that just kind of like, um, I don't know. Has a has a it's it's amazing how much more in depth you can know on a subject that you think you know when you are forced to go do homework as as a as a avocation. Oh, it's just one hundred percent. And I mean, and honestly, you hit the nail on the head when it comes to the motivations for my show and my writing and everything. I have learned to use my ADHD to my benefit. Uh, I am, yes. I am not medicated for it. Maybe I should be, but I've learned how to trick my body into working for me instead of against me. And it's working out pretty good. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. I, I would purport that, um, podcasting and related radio phenomena, radio mediums and media are very good for the neurodivergent brain in the sense that you must get it done. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you can't take the painting and languish over it for seven years and then leave it in a barn because you, an episode has to come out or else yeah. you don't have a show. Exactly. So, um, and, and more intelligent people than I have, have made, you know, like Jesse Thorne, um, Pro, uh, prominent, uh, you know, radio's sweetheart has uh, has has talked about that extensively, and he talks about it by talking about how Terry Gross said it, where you're just like, well, you know, you make the show and it's just radio, it's as good as it is, and then you move on to the next one. I'm like, yep. that's fantastic, you know, the, the you've got to you've got to be the, finished at a certain point. You can't just do yeah, it forever. The, the, in, the inverted pyramid of total psychic pressure that put pointed down at your brain to make something that is perfect, quote unquote, is out the window. It's it's not allowed in the room when you have to publish tomorrow. So um, it's one of the, it's one of the great things about doing uh, shows like this. But with that, with that aside, um, what was your experience of the novella itself of who goes there um, in reading it from what you can, from what you can recall. And I've, re- I've read it in a very fresh way in the past few days. So I won't hold you to it. If you're, you know, if you're grasping at themes, that's, you know, the, what it, we can come at it from two directions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I remember the most about it was basically what you already said, where it, it, it was striking at how much of it was like, Oh, this is, directly from the horse's mouth when it comes to uh, the film adaptation that I'm most familiar with. I think most people are more familiar with um, at least of a certain generation. But what also struck me as funny was how very of its time it seemed at the same time. Uh There's a a very old fashioned fifties style hard science, science fiction aspect Mm -hmm. to a lot of it. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and so, and again, the, it 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 does translate very well to a nineteen fifties um, version, as as we'll get to in the thing from another world. But it's it's almost hard to believe that it's a nineteen thirty eight story that he probably even wrote prior to that. You mm-hmm. know that it's kind of like a you know the Third Reich wasn't even something that a lot of people were worried about. <laughs> you know, like right. you know, you know, like I don't even know if in August of nineteen thirty eight Jesse Owens would have uh, you know kicked the Nazis' asses in the Olympics or not. I, I'm not exactly sure. So we're you know you're in the quote unquote modern world, but you're you know you're you're in that um, you're in that bridge period between the two wars that define the mentality of the boomers in the thing from another world, uh, early 1950s generation. And so what you do have in terms of quote unquote, 1938 science fiction, it's like a fuckload of chemistry and talking about radios and, yeah. and, um, an astounding amount of extrapolation from the scientific knowledge available at the time is what I kept. I was what I kept thinking is holy shit. This, you know what I mean? It, it almost has that kind of Jules Verniness to it, where you're like, you got a lot of fucking shit right, and the, the stuff that you say that's a little bit like, well, science isn't going to play out that way. You can you can more than forgive it because of how competent everything else is about the story. Yes. Um, particularly on, at least on the science side. So your main care, you know, your main characters have, um, skills in, me- you know, your main guy, the McCready character is a, a meteorologist who has yeah. studied to be an MD <laughs> and there's constantly being referred to as this, um, kind of mammoth, almost golem like ginger bearded, um, hulking character who is also uh, a a leader of men and <laughs> a meteorologist who fell into it after not being that interested in being an MD, which is like, okay, I guess that's okay. Which is like a thing that is so odd. Maybe it's it's stranger than fiction, where you're like, did you know a guy, or where did that come from? Right, um, <laughs> right. It feels very of its time, though. Again, it's that it's that like you know, double fisted kind of man's man, American yeah, kind of the, thing. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, the <laughs> Campbell, the writer of, of the novella keeps really hammering in these kind, And it, it gets, it doesn't get to the point of, of, of total silliness, but it almost has that kind of like, um, how do I, what is it? What did, it reminded me of almost kind of the side kickery of, you know, superhero comics in the forties where you, you, you could see the audience of the 11 year old boy standing behind the paperback magazine, you know what I mean? Or the, or the, you know, the spinner rack in, in the, in the soda fountain going like, Ooh, a monster is going to kill them from space. You could kind of, (laughs) you could kind of hear the author like flicking at that little boy going like, and he's a really manly man because he's big and his beard is big and you couldn't knock him down because he's a mountain. You know, it's got to right. and and it tapped on that without ruining the story, because the story, at least in my experience, you know, it's I'm not saying it's Nora Ephron, but it is it really pulled a couple of um, twists to move the plot in a direction that felt 
surprising, which is odd to somebody who knew exactly how it was going to go. Yeah. Because also, I wasn't sure. I, I, I actually thought that it was going to go in a totally, totally kind of diagonal direction from my expectation because it hewed so surprisingly close to the John Carpenter film adaptation that when it went right along with it, I kept going like, huh, actually odd. Um, some, some, um, yeah, uh, some other parallels, some other, go, you go ahead. This. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I don't, I'll hit it now. I'll hit that thought that you just said, because I don't want to fail it later on, which is if you're into the thing, just download a PDF of this thing. You know what yeah. I mean? You don't have to pay any money for it. You can find it in two clicks. Um, it is, and it's maybe a long afternoon read. I'm, yeah. I'm not the fastest scanner when it comes to reading because I, I kind of had a, have a cinematic reader's brain where I kind of like, you know, action figure the characters out in my mind and want to hear them reading the dialogue back to each other. Sure. And so I don't, I don't speed read and you could get this done, you know, in a hammock on a Thursday if you, you know, called in sick to work. No problem. Oh, easily. And easily. it, it. It, it it's it somehow hues incredibly close to the John Carpenter film while also adding such a fa- fascinating context to it. Um, and there, there are also things like McCready is named McCready and he's the same character. Mm-hmm. Blair is named Blair and he's the same character. He's the cantankerous scientist who immediately realizes the existential threat of whatever the thing is and goes apoplectic. And if anything, in this version, he goes from zero to freak out like instantly. (laughs) It's if it's, if if it's anything, it's, it's more aggressive than in the Carpenter film, because once he, once it dawns on him almost kind of off screen, he's just on the ground, like ranting and babbling. And then they're just like, okay, got to get him a shot. And they come in with like some morphine and dose him and deal with him later in a very practical way. (laughs) They're like, well, (laughs) Blair is not happy about this whole alien taking over the earth thing. So we got to put him in a room. And, and there, there are things, including the um, the the blood test scene, mm-hmm. that are line to line exactly. Like McCready essentially paraphrases himself, saying, "Like I know that I'm not one of those things, yeah, but I don't know how many of you are." And the differences uh, are kind of in this uncanny valley where I, you know, you go through the process of reading this novella and, but your brain, like, you know, you, you read the character as described on the page, but then I kind of am having this like cyberpunk dystopian kind of like switching the VCR tracking, like Kurt Russell shoving into the image going like, no, it's yeah. me and I'm wearing a sombrero. I've got a sombrero <laughs> on. And I'm calling I'm calling the chess machine a cheating bitch. And you know, it where the there this there's a cognitive dissonance that is not in my experience, it was actually kind of um amusing. And you know, yeah, it's kind of like there's two versions of the same movie but on channel two and channel three, and you're kind of like rubbing between the dials with your old, you know, like wood laminate TV dial. Yeah. (laughs) On this one, it's in black and white on this one. It's in color. What's going on. Um, so I would say that key differences 
in in who goes there are primarily obviously the level of technology, um, some of the violence. Um, the, the end of the, the end is entirely different. Yes. Um, yes. and because John Carpenter is very happy to go with, to, to, and to, to, how do I want to say stick the landing on nihilism in basically every case Absolutely, or, you know, kind yeah. of like <laughs> Viet, Vietnam war era cynicism is kind of where John Carpenter's natural, um, grift generally plays out. Does that sound accurate to you? I, I totally agree. I don't, I think, I think where, again, it's a product of its time. There, there's going to be a happy ending or at very least there's going to be a set ending with a, a novella or a short story or whatever written in this time period for the most part. Whereas Carpenter just couldn't help himself. He was like, look, this is all about changing identities. I, uh, what, what choice do I have? <laughs> it's my answer time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, spoilers for the John Carpenter movie that came out in like 1982. Um, yeah. it, you, you end with two characters who kind of nihilistically decide to die by freezing and then maybe one or both of them is thingified and maybe one of them will end up pulling a gun on the other. And it just kind of like, you know, draws back into the distance as the, the, the camp, you know, burns in flames around them being the last two quote unquote survivors of trying to eliminate this abomination from the South pole. And um, instead in the, in who goes there in the original, it's a, a much more like um, kind of like uh, dusting off of the hands. Well, we yeah. thanks to in thanks to science and the and intuitiveness and and manliness, we really solved really sorted that one out. Thank goodness and, we figured um, it out. Well done, boys. Yeah, and it's not qu- it's not quite that boy scouty, right. but it it. Um, you know, I because I will say that the the Howard Hawks. The thing from another world, 1951 version is very much in the in the in the pat on your pat pat on the back camp of like, well, wow, we um we we really dodged a bullet there, friends. Right. But the there is a there is a ponderous, um, philosophical bent to the original novel where they they do you know you do get us you do get an awareness that they're that these different characters have tears of understanding where Blair the scientist f- totally melts down because he's at the top tier of understanding the implications of this problem yeah. where if this thing really is and in the novella it's described as 2 million years old is how long it's been in the ice yeah. and i think there are some versions where they say 50,000 years old but in either of those iterations the implications of that of something that comes back after being exploded by thermite which actually is one of the details that i believe is contiguous through every single version is yeah. they blow up the ship with thermite to get it out of the ice and in every single version they're like ah that didn't go too good <laughs> like, <laughs> that's that's that. oh well yeah i guess yeah blowing it up with uh with late 20th century firecrackers was not the way to preserve a thing <laughs> that's been in the ice for um either uh, 10 or 50 million years. Um, so th- it's, um, it's the, the thermite is the same in every story. The, they dogs being a point of 
violence, danger, and anxiety is a thing in every version of the story. They do not have, they, they're, they're used in essentially the same way in the novella as in the John Carpenter version, which I was shocked by the idea that the dogs were a vessel for transmission as well as kind of a, um, uh, an emotional kind of note to be plucked at the audience to get them into the kind of like heart and viscera of the danger of this thing, you know, that it's kind of like, it's heartless. It's going to replace us and it will kill a dog in an instant. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and it, the one dog even had like a no, you know what? There was one name, uh, Chinook, I think, which is kind of like a, um, white bullshit Eskimo take yeah. on what to name a dog. Um, but it, it, you know, there are named dogs in the original novella, which um, really plays into how the dogs are taken as such a crucial aspect to the way that the plot of the, the Carpenter version works. They are not addressed. Um, and we're going to get into the thing from another world from 51, like in its own little chunk, but they're not addressed in that movie as much. There's kind of one scene where you see the, uh, you see the Frankensteinian monster of the vegetable man in that version outside in silhouette, kind of fighting like nine dogs, yeah. but everything's kind of camera obscura, kind of just black and white, like, Oh, what's going on out in the snow. And then that's pretty much mostly it. And then you realize via thanks to science with an exclamation point that, um, right. it's like using the blood that it got off of the dogs to, um, kind of regenerate itself a la like a green magic card. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and so it doesn't have the depth of plot and, and, um, emotional stakes as it does in every other version, but I was, you know, the dogs, the, the use of actual science as being crucial in every case. And in multiple cases, it being, you know, blood science that can determine where the, where the monster is. That being that being in every uh, version has really surprised me. I don't, you know what? It, it leads me to try to get to the crux of this way earlier than I was anticipating. <laughs> because I, as a listener to this show, I can rely on you. I know Phil to kind of to, to put on your one of your literary hats and go like, what is the what is the through line through these? And I'm not saying we have to like crack that nut in this instance, but. And if, if, if I had like a mission statement for this show, one of them certainly is like, say a bunch of dumb shit that might be funny and then accidentally maybe stumble in a dark room on, you know, like a metathesis about a subject. And I, I've, I've kind of kicked over a couple in the dark attic of this subject, but I, I haven't quite, um, uh, I haven't quite open, opened it up and triple underlined exactly. It's like, ah, the thing represents capitalism. Right. Um, and I was, I was, I was, I was wondering if there are nodes of thought that jump to you about when you align at least the novella and the John Carpenter version and anything else in the thing of earth that, that crosses your mind, what kind of snaps to grid and you go like, well, this is consistently what this 
what this is on a, a metatextual level. Is there something there that, that jumps out to you? I'm going to push you out on the plank first. It, it, it sounds like cheating. It sounds like totally cheating, but it's the other. It's, it's, that's, that's the thing that it all comes, you know, you've got the fifties, both the thirties, the original and the fifties from what little I know of it. Uh, but based on, you know, synopses and stuff like that, there's, it's a pretty standard, uh, 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 what pod people kind of like, they're all communists mm-hmm. and they could be communists yeah. can look like you and they could, they could talk like you one minute. They're a good, hardworking American. And the next they're commies and better, better yes. dead than red, you know? And yes, you know, and uh, I don't know how well the timeline works out for the, I don't know in the late thirties was, was uh, red scare stuff, a big thing in America. I'm not familiar with yeah, that. Well, I mean, <sighs> Essentially, there was there was communist anxiety since at least the twenties because you've got like mm-hmm. the you know like the Sacco and what's the what's the other Sacco I'm gonna say Sacco and Sacco and Vincetti or is because you you have the like you know you have that actual early twentieth century era. What's up, you greasy dogs? This is Professor Marmalade coming at you dry and sneezy from underneath the old T and L hot dogs on High Street in Morgantown, West Virginia. I'm gonna drop some 1920s Red Scare knowledge on your juicy asses, so here we go. During the Red Scare of 1919-1920, many in the United States feared recent immigrants and dissidents, particularly those who embraced communist, socialist, or anarchist ideology. The causes of the Red Scare included Red Scare headlines and World War I, which led many to embrace strong nationalistic and anti-immigrant sympathies. The Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, which led many to fear that immigrants, particularly from Russia, Southern Europe, and Eastern Europe, intended to overthrow the United States government. The end of World War I, which caused production needs to decline and unemployment to rise. Many workers joined labor unions. Labor strikes, including the Boston police strike in September 1919, contributed to fears that radicals intended to spark a revolution. Self-proclaimed anarchists mailing bombs to prominent Americans, including United States Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer and United States Supreme Court Associate Justice, and former Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court Chief Justice, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. So by 1938 Americans, and many throughout the world had intense fear and hatred of communism and anything that could be associated with it, whether those fears were founded or not. Communism and communists, real or imagined, have been used ever since by the right wing as a hollow boogeyman, a straw man devil that allows them to rationalize all sorts of corrupt and violent behavior because, to some audience, Anything is justifiable if it has a chance of saving us from going red. Put that in your opium pipe and smoke it, you filthy gobstoppers. Professor Marmalade out. The contiguous concern is is otherness, and that that and yeah. that and and specifically otherness as contagion, right? Which does it does well, and snap that's just to what group. I was going to say. I think it, it it's impossible to ignore. Again, I don't know how perfectly at times out, but it's impossible to ignore that John Carpenter's The Thing is was made in 1982 uh, mm-hmm. and had that focus on blood, blood tests, that sort of thing. And when we're dealing with the, the AIDS crisis right after that or right at the beginning of that, I don't know the exact timing. Um, it's, it's, it's early AIDS crisis. And yeah, I, I actually haven't, I don't know if you were, uh, that, that certainly has come up in critique of totally unintentionally John Carpenter essentially made an yeah. AIDS anxiety movie. Um, and, and, and that is very fascinating because that the testing, the blood, you know what I mean? He took it exactly from a story 
from what is the math there? Basically like 45 years prior. <laughs> you know what I mean? He, he took the plot right, device exactly. of testing the blood from 40 years prior to AIDS being a virus that existed on planet earth. And so obviously he's yeah. not like <laughs> grabbing things out of the headlines, but, yeah. but you know, when you, when you take profound themes and inject them into um, energetic examples, you will create multifaceted metaphors that will do the job of describing real terrifying shit that's going on in your actual day to day. Even if it was an idea that came around 45 years earlier, because you were, you were worried about how people were thinking either too much or not enough about communism, but uh, right. And, and, and to, to your previous point, it would have been absolutely appropriate to contextualize John W. Campbell Jr.'s anxiety as being one about communism. I'm not going to make an mm. A to B there, but there, there's probably a paper that could be written there that could posit that, right? You, you're, right. You're gra- right. Your grad cinema, study, cinema studies student could probably um, make some hay out of it. I'm not saying it's definitely yeah. true, but you are living in an era in 1938 where ideas becoming viral and turning your neighbor or the neighbor in the next country or the neighbor in the next county into an unrecognizable villain who will try to take over your world is a completely appropriate anxiety. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah. if anything, yeah. if anything, 1938 is a height of of ideas becoming viral and dangerous because people are worried about, you know, people have the, they have the anxiety about like, well, we could have another French revolution. We could have another Russian revolution. No problemo. And it looks like the Germans are having one right now. Right. And, and Germans look like me, middle, middle-class American person. And, and they, they got some weird ideas about how to behave. And then all of the Germans neighbors, they've got some other weird ideas about how to behave. And all of those, those are genuinely as like Dan Harmon from hardcore history says, they are viral ideas. Like communism and fascism were spread in a way that they did infect Nations, governments, communities, militaries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's so fascinating because we have lived in this, um, how do I want to say it? Like, um, kind of the, the, the slowly changing dominant culture in the United States has been so static, uh, so, and so well organized as to being anti-communist for so long. Oh, absolutely. That that while still having totally lost the plot as to why, you know what I mean? It's kind of like a like a like a doddering old man that knows that he's supposed to go outside at 4 p.m. every day, but he has no fucking clue why. Right. <laughs> and, but, right. but you just do it because that's because you're Tom and you go outside at four o'clock every day. Because that's you what you do. No re- yeah. You have no recollection of why. And right. um, America has kind of gotten to that point with um, with with extreme leftism and communism. So we know we don't like it, but we don't remember yeah. why we were upset about it. <laughs> and well, it's 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 why like everyone's you know everyone's marveling over like oh hey we have this far right conservative on it was like ask them to define wokeness they can't do it and I'm like 
this is not new. This is not. Ask yeah, them to but, define socialism. Ask them to define communism. Ask them to define anarchy, uh, like economic anarchy. They can't do it. Like they, it's they've never been able to do it. It's not about like thoughtfulness. <laughs> it's they don't know. It is. It is. It is really a. And that's you know. And we don't. <laughs> this is going to be an episode that's going to annoy Gavin because Gavin really makes me avoid being uh, a left-wing lunatic. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to be he's able to not on, with that. But he's not on the show today, motherfuckers. But the, but the other otherness and the the de- develop whipping otherness up into a frenzy that makes you reify the examples of the, the, the anxieties of the dominant culture is really a, it's a really a right wing kind of piece of business. Yeah. And that's whether you're in America or Mexico or Spain or France or wherever of def- defining the idea that there is an internalized other in, in the bomb shelter with you yeah. in the suburban neighbor with you. If you're Rod Serling, if you're um, if you're just the American people, and you see somebody that dresses weird, or you can't tell whether they're a boy or a girl, or they want you to call them a weird pronoun, or they're you know chopping chopping up babies at some weird factory down the street, or whatever it is you think that they're doing, right. the 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 pushing them, making sure that those other people are marginalized, and that you point a kind of theoretical flamethrower at them to keep your headquarters safe for the majority is it's always a piece of right wing business. It's really never the left wing. That's like, we got to get those weirdos out of here. The left wing is always the fucking weirdos. And it's not an American thing. It's just the Americans have created a very um, energetic culture of doing it. That looks crazy even to the rest of the world. Right. Um, (laughs) That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Energetic. Let's say that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm trying to say, my hot takes in a in a consumable fashion. You're a born so diplomat, I, I, which I did. <laughs> that's a that's a good one, Phil. Like, thank you. That's, yeah. Always how I have been portrayed in the media. It's is true. It's true. Always pulling my punches and uniting, uniting, uh, I, <laughs> uniting all of the misaligned parties. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> Well, I, as we could, we could rant about, um, right wing paranoia all day, but the, the, the thing about it is it really does, um, it really does snowball out of kind of capital O otherness, which is, which is the essential thread that goes through all of these versions of who goes there and every single version of the thing. If anything, did, I'm sure you must have seen, well, I could be wrong, the 2011 prequel sequel thing that was based I off did, of John yeah. Carpenter's. Which, what the hell did you think about that? <laughs> because I, I didn't prep, I didn't say we were going to talk about that, but I, I, you know, there's always surprises on this show. I, I actually saw that one in the theaters. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember. So did I. Yeah, it, I, I remember it having uh, Ramona from. Uh, 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 Scott Pilgrim in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's got haircuts. She, yeah, she, she was wearing a wig, right? Uh, yeah, that had and to be uh, weird, right? I remember, I remember that was kind of prime time, which we're still in, to be fair, but it was like way more overt in those days where that was like, okay, a thing happened in this 
classic movie and we've got to show you how it happened. So here's the part where the two guys get melded together in the process. And it's, and it just didn't, it was interesting, but not very satisfying. And they wanted to use all the CGI, but one of the reasons Uh that, John Carpenter's The Thing has survived so long and is so well-loved is because of the practical effects, which feels like a wasted opportunity to me. Um, yeah, which which I know is an, it's a really an old uncle, uh, it's an old uncle drum that we really bang on our show. Yeah. Kind of a little cliche, but um, I will tell you, if you watch John Carpenter's The Thing at home on your, you know, 42-inch TV and you're like, those practical effects look kind of silly. Well, one, shut the fuck up. And two, right, yeah. First off, back off. And two, <laughs> first of all, step the fuck back, man, because I am feeling a little bit pressured. And two, um, I, I went and saw it at the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood oh, when wow. I was living in Los Angeles. And I have to tell you, I was not prepared for the full big cinema version of the effects having already seen the film Mm -hmm. 45 fucking times. I mean, it's in my top three movies, like just total. And, and the, uh, the, the scare scenes are so visually overwhelming and well acted and abrupt that the Rob, you know, the kind of wrinkles that you can see where Rob Bodden has definitely made an object uh, you know, and that the lighting is maybe a little bit too crisp on the edges of that jagged piece of flesh. All of that is fucking out the window. You are not <laughs> having you, it is. You are you are two hands gripping that hard seat arm, lifting your ass up in the air, trying to push away from the terrifying monster on the screen. You are, you are in Kurt Russell's pants where you always expected you would finally be going like, Holy shit. Get that fucking thing away from me. It is, it is, there is no, um, nuanced critique of the production design going on in the cinema version. So if you have a chance to, for some reason to see a 35 or some kind of weird restored 4k bullshit version of the 1982's, the thing in a theater Mm. setting, you do it. It is nuts. I was Uh, not anticipating it. I was like, this is going to be good. And it was way more than I was uh, way more than I was even prepared for. I got to look into that. That's great. 100,000 years ago. Go. It found its way into our galaxy. Trapped in the frozen wasteland of Antarctica, it could not escape. Now the men of Station 4 have made a monumental discovery. An alien creature had frozen but not to death. And man... It isn't Benning! ...is the warmest place to hide.
And it is a movie that, because of its status, it does get played. Those 35 prints, mm -hmm. they do run around. So it is not an impossible task. Even if, You don't have to be living in Hollywood to some somehow find a way to go watch the thing in a, a proper big screen format. I, I love, and, and I'm right there with you. I mean, The Thing is easily in my top three horror films of all time, probably in my top five films of all time. And mm -hmm. it was one of those things that me and my wife, actually, we don't, we don't really fight. We don't argue or anything like we, we, you know, disagree from time to time, like any couple would, but, but, uh, we don't, we don't hold grudges. We're both too old for that shit. And, and, and we're just kind of done with that kind of <laughs> uh -huh. squabbling. I, I say that now and I'm going to walk out into the living room. She's gonna be like, who's this bitch? I don't know. Uh, but, <laughs> but in any case, it, the, one of the, if, if any, Anytime someone describes one of their partners being mad at them and say, uh -huh. oh, she got pissed at me over something. And, and But we all know what that's like. Am I right? And everyone thinks everyone who's listening right now is thinking back to that time that you we all have that moment. Mine. One of my only ones with my wife was over John Carpenter's The Thing. Oh, really? I, yes. I, now we the inquiring minds must. <laughs> what, how how did that play out? What I was getting at is, if I have to go into a movie theater, it will be alone. Uh, but it, it's it's because my my wife was raised very evangelical, very very religious, uh -huh, okay. and uh, and and dropped all that by the wayside by the time that I I, I met her. Um, but one of the things that had kind of stuck with her was horror movies. Cause there is this, there is this evangelical thing where it's not enough yeah, for a yeah, horror yeah. movie just to be scary or to maybe have some blasphemous imagery. There is this sense with a lot of them that like the devil is in this and you're exposing <laughs> yeah, yeah, yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. That you're opening a door or a window. You're in, it's kind of like playing with a Ouija board anytime you're, right. you're watching a horror movie. Right. Yeah. So she had never seen really any horror films growing up and uh, certainly not on the level that I had. And, and a big part of it is, is I remember, and I'm sure you were the same way because when you're a kid and you'd go to the blockbuster, or whatever the local video rental place was, and you go into the horror section where you're not allowed to rent any of those movies. But the cover art scared you shitless. It scared the <laughs> hell out yes. of you. But then when you saw it later, when you were a little older, you're like, this sucks. Like, Full Moon Entertainment, what the hell? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, and Full Moon. I, 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 have to, I have to eventually have a whole Full Moon, full moon thing, but go ahead. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but but the, and that was kind of her whole life. Like they, they, everyone around her had never seen these movies, but they knew they were scary, and so they would just kind of build them up bigger in their head than they even were. Um, and so she literally, the I think the year we met, she had seen Hereditary of all things, uh, which is intense for even yeah, horror sure. fanatics. Uh, and she found that she really liked it. Uh, she went okay. Was, really fucking good and so we we meet we start dating and i'm like well i'm kind of a horror nerd and she was like that's good because i'd like to learn more about that the first movie we watched together was alien and uh she wow, loved it okay. to the point that we went out and got an orange cat and named it jonesy so <laughs> like interesting and, our, yeah. and his little sister big, is ripley big. like we have two cats and they're you know it's like and then nice. so i'm like okay uh, and in October, we watch nothing but horror films. And, and and she has so much fun with it because some sometimes they're schlocky and fun. Sometimes she's like, well, that was shitty. Why, why was I scared of that? Um, and sometimes they're masterpieces, like horror tends to be. It's, it's they, Horror tends to be like a masterpiece or absolute garbage. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, it, for it, sure. 
there's there's very little in between. Uh, and and so we'll watch nothing but horror films. And one night I'm like, okay, we're gonna watch the thing. This is one of my favorite horror films of all time. Alien might be the only one that like beats it out for like just uh-huh. overall fanaticism for me. And I and I did what I try never to do, uh, uh, but I just built it up and built it up and built it up uh, because I'm an idiot. And uh, and that and then so we watch it, and very early on she gets real quiet, and she has this <laughs> look on her face, like this just kind of. I, I I like like someone texted her during the movie and said he's cheating and here's the proof and she doesn't want to get into it <laughs> until the film's over. And wow. I'm like I don't know why I'm in trouble, but I know I'm in trouble. Uh-huh. And uh, so the movie ends and I'm like so what you think and she goes off on this tirade saying like I understand that this means a lot to you and this movie was great to you and da da da, da and everything da, 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 and, and but and, and but but some things are unnecessary some things aren't necessary and it was the dogs <laughs> oh she, she's of a course. dog fanatic she is of she course. is a of dog person I, I, I was I was grasping and grasping going what is where is the terrible demonic blasphemy in this movie about like Ten men in the snow. I'm like, what right, is it? Right. Okay, I was yeah. like, how did this go too far? But she is a dog person. She was. She she had a. Dog. Of course. Yeah. yeah. She had a dog who died years ago, and she still chokes up thinking about that dog. Like she is a well, dog I'll, person. Uh, yeah. Of course. I mean, <clears throat> my. You know, I. Yeah, my, a dog was my my second pet, and I'm not a dog person. Yeah. I, you know, I'm famously now a cat person. But yeah, I'm a um, cat person too. Yeah, under under the right circumstances, I, I, I dogs to me are kind of like kids. Is I love them, but I want them to go home after they're done playing. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and stay in the night. I I love them, but they just shit everywhere. And like you go shit somewhere else. Uh, but yeah. the, and but I do. I can really like I'm as much as anybody can have that profound like. Oh, the dog is jumping on its owner because he got home from the <laughs> Marines after two years. You know, it gets me too. I'm, you know, cat persons, cat people can still, you know, ha- enjoy good things. And 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 one of the one of the reasons that you never vacuum up the use of the dogs in your thing story uh-huh. is because it is such a power drill down to the boiling magma of emotion in the audience absolutely where it is where you know as i alluded to before it's visceral because you know terrible things happen to the dogs and dogs cannot defend themselves i mean we don't have to drag out the book like save the cat on script right right yeah to like understand that this is there's a reason that people have been doing this since prior to 1938 you know what i mean that like that uh, that this alien is it won't maybe it may be necessary to establish its alienness by the fact that it's like fuck these dogs <laughs> you know what i mean right, the first thing right. i'm gonna, the first thing i'm going to do either by accident is by hook or by crook um invade destroy and kill a few of these dogs that mean absolutely nothing to me which right. in the triangulation of otherness is the most efficient show not tell way yep. to other 
the monster from the people and then Absolutely. inevitably in in POV from the audience and the reader that the there is no more efficient way you know that i kind of think of I, I you must be like a serenity and firefly nerd right oh absolutely so, yeah yeah like we know in in the pilot episode where the guy who you think is totally the vanilla jerk but ends up being the spy like yeah. knock knocks out book the priest and then after he knocks him out he's knocked out and he just stands there and kicks him an extra time for no reason yeah you know what yeah. i mean and that is the the anti-save the cat of that evil, like governmental spy in that pilot that defines like this guy isn't bad. He's, he's fucking awful and you can kill him and not feel bad about it. Yeah. Well, you know, that is the eating and consuming the dogs in every, in every version of the thing. It's like, all right, this thing just fucking eats dogs and is like, got no problem about it. Fuck this thing, which is, (laughs) which is in a way why they're able, because that is downplayed. In the 1950s version, in the Howard Hawks film, it also allows for the space for um, a thing that they have kind of in opposite in the mirror image with the scientists in that version, which is the scientist in that version. He's kind of, you know, it's a much more it both that movie. It's kind of a yin yang with the thing from another world. And um, why can I not think about it? Klaatu Barata Nikto. What is the name of that movie? Um, oh, the one. Uh, <laughs> I've done uh, it to you because we both have ADHD brains. Oh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. God damn it. Uh, uh, the, the other one with the scientist and the, oh, uh, the, the, the day the earth stood still. The day the earth stood still. They are kind of um, they both came out within six months of each other yep. and they essentially function as the launch into the uh, high production value 1950s science fiction era. And in the case of the thing from another world, you have the dark, grim, cynical reality of this motherfucker is going to come eat us. And you have a much more ET friendly. These, these robot people would like to give us the cure for cancer shit with, um, with our opposite light version. And, and in, and in that, um, that tension is exemplified in the thing from another world where the otherness is handled in the dogs. It's handled in the alien. It's handled in the primary female character, because uh, unlike nearly all of the other versions of the thing, the the one from Howard Hawks's version has one female character oh, and somebody. Okay. Yeah, it has it has a the, the Howard Hawks version is. It's it's so a Howard Hawks movie. And I don't know if you've seen Bringing Up Baby. I don't know if you've seen other Howard Hawks films, but he is kind of um, living an early 20th century reality where nobody if if nobody's bantering, the scene is very tense by the sense that like the banter is is almost a wall to wall soundtrack where people are joking and laughing and ribbing each other. And that joviality is the space of the the space that the film lives in. That brings a lie, sir. I saw it. I shot it. I hit it. I know it. Nothing happened. It just kept coming at me, making a noise like a cat. Captain, it was awful. You could have seen those hands and those eyes. Captain, you've got to do something about it. You've got Is it human or inhuman? Earthly or unearthly? 
baffling questions, astounding questions that not even the world's greatest scientific minds can answer. Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? A being from another world as different from us is one pole from the other. 1.9. Needles hit the top. And that in every case, whether it's a it's a tiger that they have to take care of or an alien from space, a separate thing comes in as an interloper and says, fuck your whole thing up. You got to deal with me now. Right. And the way that they get through it is jocularity and humor. And and so you kind of you need this female foil that's the cute, uh, the cute love interest of the surprisingly friendly and ribald captain of the North Pole camp of the film (laughs) so that all of his subordinates can demonstrate their joviality by poking him in the ribs about it over cards. And, and, and so there, there's this very like high waisted um, leather belt um, air force jacket, kind of like, Hey, and she really got the better of you that night, didn't she, Buster, down in Honolulu? <laughs> and they're going back and forth. And really, there is no hero protagonist. The hero protagonist is almost like one of those World War II escape films where it's very much, it's a Hogan's heroes. They're, you know, Hogan is only the facade of the protagonist in Hogan's heroes. The, the whole, the group of the the diverse G.I. Joe team of this um, ragtag bunch of Americans who are going to use their guts and wily um, determination to get through this w- through thick or thin. That is the protagonist is the group, which is right. astounding because what they were othering is communism. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The paranoia that the Howard Hawks version has in the ultra high conformity world of 1951 America is the thing that they're worried about is collectivity and radical and the radical left. But the way that they demonstrate their Americanness is in working together, sharing resources, being a team and allowing everybody's individually individuality to jump in and play in the space and then step back safely and not, not be judged there. If anything, the, the, and the and you're gonna have to go and watch it because it's gonna drive you crazy as soon as you get done with this episode. I'm, I'm going positive. to have to. Yeah, is the, the it's you can get it for uh, seven dollars on Amazon. But nice. the, the but the 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 ragtag team in the 1951 Howard Hawks version is a perfect demonstration of collectivism in the for in in the version of an an army crew that is forced to work with a civilian scientific team. And that, and that um, the duality really battles uh, against each other of emotions versus logic respectively. And Mm -hmm. also um, chaos versus chaos versus lawfulness in the sense of following the rules, adhering to authority and taking bureaucracy seriously, seriously in the case of the scientific characters. But what ultimately happens is they end up alienating 
the head, like, I want to make friends with it scientist character who is has too much facial hair and smokes too many pipes to be right. right. <laughs> and th- thus eliminating the intellectual expert, but only the head of that beast, because there's a whole fucking team of these scientists working under him who revolt and say like, yeah, we're going to tell you his plan that was going on the whole time. It turns out that there's, he's like fostering a bunch of these alien plants and this weird little crib. And you probably should do something about that. Cause this guy's fucking yeah. nuts. And yeah. he does the most cliche scientific thing in the world where finally they've got the kind of like Frankenstein vegetable man. It's a vegetable man in this movie. Don't, it's a whole thing. It, the they vegetable did that a man, lot. It was always a vegetable. That's, that's, that's such yeah, an interesting choice. Yeah. I, it's, it's a whole, it's like a Vulcan logic versus emotions thing where I can never remember the name of actor when I (laughs) desperately need it. My literally my favorite actor, he was, he got a, uh, he got a, uh, let's see one flew over the cuckoo's nest. The guy who got nominated who wasn't Jack Nicholson is my favorite actor who is worm tongue in the two towers. Oh, and Chucky. Chucky, yeah. Brad Dourif. Brad Dourif. Yes, 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 yes. You are so, a beautiful so, butterfly, Dourif. Yes, br- yeah, exactly. So Dr. Carrington, in this instance, creates the original cinematic role of the um, the drooling Brad Dourif scientist who just wants to make friends with the alien right. and walks up to it <laughs> and gives a whole speech to this seven-foot guy, vegetable Frankenstein, and goes like, I know with your vast intelligence that is beyond ours that I come to you with no weapons and with... All of this wisdom, you must know that I mean no harm. And it just fucking smashes him to the floor and breaks his collarbone. And you're like, and you're like well, we've established how that's going to go for every science, science fiction movie from now to eternity. Yeah, that's yeah. We just we just set down the foundation. And then everybody that has not been othered in the film that remains zaps the shit out of him with an electrical trap that they've devised with their ingenious American come togetherness teamwork. Right. Which and and they win the day by othering the scientist fuddy duddy super expert, which also defines a great American tradition of anti intellectualism that is just only gotten better since then. Oh, it's just it's just <laughs> it's, with age has just oh beautiful. Yeah, no. it is. It yeah it it is the no notes. It it is the twelve percent triple. Uh, Belgian uh, of uh, great American delusions that um, oh, yeah. that that your expertise is equivalent to my random ass opinion, right? And the, and it's great in the film because you're like this guy really needs to get his head fucking squared on straight, but it totally il- illustrates the bizarre literary irony that we have created a protagonist that is not the captain. It's not any of his individual plucky cohort. It is all of them as a true team with no eye in it that defeats the otherness of the individual lost, terrified, lone, viral other that is purely logic and sees them as only a, a source of blood and food. Yeah. And the fact that that anxiety is pointed as best as we can possibly articulate it at the Ruskies and the Cold War in this instance is so bizarrely intensely ironic. There's it's you almost can't articulate it because it's so infuriating. 
It's fascinating because it really is. I mean, it, I think it would be extra strange if it, it, it's it's just a good thing that that lack of introspection never happened again after this. Uh, <laughs> yes. I think that's that, really that, the, that, what's important. Yeah. That we put our heads down to solving humanity's problems from a yeah. real top-down view and resolved all of them in a real kind of Jean-Luc Picard, um, frictionless, total humanitarian Absolutely. resolve. And no one, no one starves or commits genocide to this day. No, no, things Ooh. are different now. I'm like David Letterman throwing my copy of it. <laughs> which I've never done on this show before. Uh, you bring out a different side. You bring it. It's, out a it's what side I'm here for, my baby. Co-hosting. <laughs> Anyone else with a comment? Brief aside, I did a ridiculous. I did a really stupid thing yesterday. Well, I Go did on. a couple of stupid things, t- uh, like um, kind of stacked on each other. One, I watched Leprechaun Two. Um, because (laughs) last year I did at this time of the year, I did leprechaun for a, uh, you know, a St. Patrick's day, um, subject on the show. And then idiotically year since that one, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. And then idiotically, I, I, maybe it hasn't been, I mean, is that a year ago? I don't know. It would be weird for me to have not done it then. But anyway, um, I feel like it was a St. Patrick's Day episode. I just didn't think maybe, about it. But I, and uh, and I so I watched it alone because I reasonably assumed that my partner did not want to watch that. Because why would you? <laughs> and um, and I drank a shamrock shake while doing so. And so sure. of course I felt like I felt like a bag of ass because as an adult, um, that much sugar without a whole meal oh, surrounding yeah. it is not good for the body. And it's going to ruin um, your life. Absolutely. So I, so I, I, yeah, I felt like, like, um, shamrock shit squared for most sure. of the evening. <laughs> but for some reason I have assigned myself this terrible Sisyphusian thing annually where I'm going to watch a, uh, leprechaun movie every year on St. Patrick's day and, um, report back my findings. And my findings were very simple about leprechaun two. It's bad. Yeah, <laughs> not as good as Leprechaun One, which was only kind of salvageable because of its novelty. I'm, I think I think if it helps, at least none of us were. We were we weren't like waiting with bated breath for the. Uh, no. for, for that's that why I've turned it into. Review. That's why I've turned it into a footnote activity. It's just a yeah. thing. I, <laughs> it's a thing that I do to myself, and I will only report back to, about it as much as is, uh, feels appropriate, which is very little. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. So yeah, it's not gonna. It's not gonna be an episode. It's just like, yep, that was a thing. That was something um, that happened. That was a thing that happened. People were in this movie, and they got killed by Warwick Davis in a silly little green outfit. They sure did. I'm going to read one little piece from a thing that I I don't usually do this on on, on the um, I don't usually do this on the podcast, but I have a book that I actually used during the writing of my uh, grad film thesis way back in whenever the fuck that was 2008 2009. You uh, your timeline was probably similar to mine. So mm. um, it's a book by a guy named Kendall R. Phillips called Projected Fears. Uh, the subtitle Horror Films in American Culture, which I used very uh, extensively. When I wrote my paper, which, uh, if anybody gives a flying fuck, was on uh, masks in horror films like um, Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers. Nice. And, yada, yada, yada. and that was before that was like the most trite thing in the whole fucking world, I swear. Um, and and 
Um, he says a whole bunch of really, he has, there's a whole chapter on the thing from another world. But one of the things he says is there are three prominent, there's a whole section on the others. So if you were, if you were concerned about having any buttresses stuck under your thesis, Phil, uh-huh. the, the, Others as a primary component in in this um, oeuvre is uh, it's dead center, dead center supported by this guy who wrote a whole fucking book about it. And I I highly recommend this book, by the way, is there are he says there are three prominent others in in the film, uh, the thing from another world, the that the group encounters, uh, the group being this um, military camp on the North Pole. Nikki, which is the um, the female of the group who is othered by her being female, the scientists, which are the civilians of the camp that all obviously have a different set of priorities than the um, air force team on the whole. And of course the thing, these three others exist along a continuum of acceptance in which Nikki is sought out by the group because her, um, and this is me ad libbing here for a moment, but essentially <laughs> he talks about another part where her, um, for lack of a better term, um, kind of sexual ambiguity or rather the usage of masculine and feminine traits finds, makes her someone that both fits in and is useful. And that is a theme that is explored throughout, um, Howard, Howard Hawks's movies. But so Nikki is sought out by the group. Uh, the scientists are accepted, but largely not incorporated until the end when they kind of turn, and this is me ad-libbing again, they turn coat on their leader who has gone uh, to Brad Dura for the whole group. And then lastly, the thing, which must be destroyed entirely. And if anything, if I were to, so this is, so end quote, if I were to extrapolate in a, in a way different than he does in relationship to how our um, kind of thesis has, has brought it to the surface, that continuum, to me, illustrates exactly uh, the thing that I found so annoyingly ironic, which is that continuum is on an axis of of how much you're willing to buy into the the diverse team and contribute to it, yeah. because uh, that continuum rides that axis. And Nikki, although she is othered in her marginalized sex is brought in because she is willing to buy into the thinking and the function and the needs and the goals of the team. The scientists less so because they are on all those less so. And the thing entirely entire is entirely antagonistic. It is individualistic in this case, which is interesting because in other versions, the thing uh, in a way it kind of, flips where the thing rep does represent communism in a specific way because it represents a lack of individuation. It were, you know, it's a super entity. It's a fungus almost. And, and, and that it is an interloper, an outsider, and that has a viral quality that can take over and destroy your individuality if given the opportunity. And, and that, so if you were, if you were worried that your, um, otherness thesis was not going to have any legs on this show, you have come to the wrong place, Phil. You, um, <laughs> I came with books, uh, which we is brought knowledge I, from the libraries. I, I don't, you know, I actually, I found this book because, um, at that time when I was living in a, what was funny is I did a weird thing where I didn't actually leave 
Los, I didn't actually leave Savannah with my degree. I went, I had an internship, which got me, ended up having, given me a job at the talent agency in Los Angeles. And yeah. so I got to finish writing my thesis while in LA. And what I realized was like, hey, we got some way better fucking libraries about film in LA than we do in Savannah. Yeah, who would um, <laughs> And um, at the time, um, the USC campus was at least during the summer, you could just drive nearby and walk on and walk into the library and nobody actually checked who you were. <laughs> so I, I would just walk onto the UC USC campus and go into their film library because they have a library just about like a, a section of one of their main libraries just about film and um, rifle through what cool books they had about um, tentacle monsters and weird thing th- things. So um, how about that? How about them apples? That's and awesome. <laughs> It was pretty funny because I, I guarantee now I would have been like uh, picked up and shuffled out by some um, some capital G goons. They, oh, you know, yeah. People have got yeah. people have gotten more anxious in America over time. I don't know if anybody's told you guys on the news. I haven't noticed personally, uh, but uh, <laughs> I've heard rumblings. Yes. Yeah, I saw it on the tweets. Um, yes. Yes. People are nervous. That's the spirit. Keep them flying. What? The flags of discontent. Remember, never trust anybody over 30. Definitely reading Who Goes There enhanced my appreciation of the John Carpenter film in ways that I really did not anticipate anticipate at all. I, I anticipated that it would enrich and enhance, but similar to seeing it in 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 big screen, I was absolutely not pre- prepared for the scale of that enhancement. Um and and one of the things that I did not anticipate being a through line was that there is a very um, there is a lost thread in the plot that has to do with the alien being able to read your mind. Did you pick yes. up on this in reading the novella? And because it, it's much more prominent in the novella. Yes, and they they cut that obviously. They really give it some paragraphs in the novella where they think that they're they're having weird dreams um, the, like McCready and some of the other characters. Um, I think Gary, who is the captain, who are are traveling with the thing when it's still um, cocooned in its icy carapaces. They bring it back from the landing site um, and they're having odd daydreams and visions. And when they sleep, they sleep thoughts that perhaps it is intimated are, are projected into their minds by the thing. Yeah. Um, I'm sure, you know, because you're enough of a, a thingophile that Fuchs, uh, the character in the John Carpenter version has a very specific hmm, role in the film where he's kind of a curious, interested skeptic scientist that is not the rambling paranoiac that Blair is. Yeah. Yeah. And continue. And he's the one who kind of, in addition to Dr. Copper inherits the job of doing the science business after Blair like flips his lid and starts like, um, trying to, to murder everybody. And, you know, he's the one who's paranoidly, you know, kind of armed with a vial or an Erlenmeyer flask full of acid, ready to throw it on anybody that he thinks might be an intruder. And, <laughs> and, and 
Um, and also he's the one that's perhaps most enigmatically killed where they just find his glasses and some of his clothes out in, out in the, um, the frozen wilderness. And they kind of are forced to indirectly ask, maybe he thought he, maybe he realized he was the thing and he burned himself. Maybe he fought the thing and it killed him. And you really, you truly don't know what the fuck happened to Fuchs. Like if if there is a negative space in the eye of the storm of the thing, it contains a couple of pieces of business. One of the main ones being what the fuck happened with Fuchs? Because he had some kind of, he had one of those terrible, you know, like slimy tentacle pieces of business happen with him in some way, but you, it, it, it makes the film more tense by not knowing it because he seemed to have the best rational grasp on the situation as opposed to like McCready, who is a fantastic point of view character because he's dumb like the audience and he's a tough guy who can operate a flamethrower, but he's not doing chemistry about it. He, you know, like until he gets to the idea of the blood test, he's depending on the other more scientific characters in the sweaters to go like, well, this will be the smart thing to do. And eliminating Fuchs really takes away a bunch of your arsenal in terms of like, we could science about it, like in the novel. And you're like, okay, but what if we helicopter piloted about it for a while? Right. And, (laughs) and, 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 and Fuchs has this throwaway line where he's worried uh, where he's, he's been having, he's been having weird dreams. And there's also a throwaway line in the thing from another world where one of these random cohort of the air force team says, I just had a thought. What if it can read our minds? And one of the other guys in the Howard Hoxian style says, well, he's going to be real pissed off when he, when he reads mine. <laughs> and, and, and it's just, it's, it's, it goes by that quick. And, but it does. It's so funny. There's this tiny blip of this thing that was very, um, not essential, but seemed existentially horrific in a way that played in the novella that that doesn't quite translate, but it's just kind of like a throwaway line by a character who just had a random thought. I never picked up on that. That's fantastic. I wouldn't have it a million years if I wasn't doing this show. Maybe it's like <laughs> uh, maybe fifty thousand years buried under buried under the ice. The idea of a um uh, an alien monster that has a telepathic power. Also, I think gets to one of the bedrock anxieties about the thing being that it, it has an, it has a virality and a way it has an essence that eludes individualism in a way that is infectious in ways that you can't even totally understand as a human being. Right. Right. It doesn't just have to grab you. It can actually, it can actually just put ideas into your dreams, which, which starts to, to, to get into that, um, post science danger of, we, we truly don't understand. It's all, it has that almost spiritualism of like, like a Freddy Krueger fairy puka business that is like, well, that's, 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 it's so on the edge of science versus horror. In this case, science being reduced to, 
something that has to do with their material scientific world and horror being something that relates to um, the otherness of spirituality or, or religion that it's really rubbing up against that, um, you know, the, the cells of your spreadsheet that differentiates one versus the other, at least from the perspective of the human beings that are having to deal with it. Does that, does that generate any thoughts in you that, um, that kind of like bring something new to the surface? Because that really rang my bell. I haven't. I not, I didn't think about that. Like I, the, I, I, I just thought of the, uh, the telepathic ability and everything like that as kind of the way I always interpreted it. If there was, if there was anything to be used in the John Carpenter film, it would be something along the lines of this is its way of like getting to know who you are and being able to better imitate you. It's, 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 it's yeah, nothing more well, than a tool to kind of, and, and, well, yeah, right. And they definitely, they explore that in, in the novella specifically, right? Because they, yeah. it's, it's, it's all almost odd how in depth that they actually, they take the subtext and they textualize it by having dialogue back and forth between the characters going like, well, if it was going to imitate you, it would have to do this and this and this. And then, you know, one of the, one of the other scientific characters goes, well, if it was going to really imitate you, it wouldn't be able to do the things that you can do. It couldn't act like you without the mental context of being you. So therefore it would need some kind, it would need some psychological context to act like you that oddly they didn't just take from the brain being the physical manifestation of the mind that for some reason in 1938, I think maybe Campbell had a necessity to kind of like swallow the soul in a way right, and right. be like, well, the brain can't be in the mind. That's just fucking dumb. <laughs> you know, right. like, <laughs> he was, he was very scientific of a thinker, but he wasn't that scientific. We're like, well, the brain just, the brain has the mind in it. Right. Like that. No, no, no Descartes. No, but uh, so no, nothing. Okay. <laughs> they, they found it necessary to swallow the knowledge center, which is somehow non-material in his, in his idea of, of what a person is, that there is a separate piece of business other than your brain that contains your mind, which is, um, both generous and in a way kind of naive looking at it from this, from, but I, you know, also people are still religious. So what the fuck? Maybe it's morbidly optimistic. I don't know. Uh, th- but in 1938, it wouldn't have been, it certainly would not have been that odd to, um, to not hew to the material as the right. ultimate form of reality. Um, and, but I, I think that I could have gone the, the rest of my life and not made that con- that ch- connection that all of these chains include a little tiny bit of lip service to the idea that this thing is not only viral in material body, but it's also viral in thought, which is, um, really kind of finally the Uroboros snake eating its own tail conceptually when it comes to the thing in the sense that the virality of thought is really the anxiety that it addresses, at least by people that are in your and my position of, of looking at it and going like, what the fuck does this mean? Right. Like, like it's some thoughts are dangerous. And in this case, they are exemplified by an alien from another planet. And, and, <laughs> and what, and I, 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 I love certain subjects on this show because they're so stupid. They're entertaining. And I love other subjects on this show because they're so, um, 
they are so sneakily sophisticated that they are entertaining, even though they are usually carapaced in a um, dense armor of unsophisticated media. You know what I mean? Like my favorite thing are smart movies that are packaged as dumb movies. There is, there there is, there is, you know, like, and the thing is a good example of that where although it has a massive cult status, all of the trappings of it are like, there's a fucking monster. It's from space. And this guy's going to try to kill it with a flamethrower. And, and, and the fact that it contains um, some of the most influential cultural messages and dynamics of at least the American 21st century is, it's just an endless source, an endless source of joy for me. Oh, and I'm sure as it is to you, there's a reason we keep coming back to that. Well, I mean, it, 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 that's, that's why we're still talking about this fucking movie. So after so many years. Yeah. Though, yeah. The, I mean, the thing as in who goes there, um, certainly I am legend is in, yeah, is in the, is the same, t- like, micro bucket of of silly genre stuff that is actually maybe the most essential American story total because we have um thanks to it the way that that I am legend which if you're not familiar is the um the the story that also is the Will Smith story that's about to have a sequel but has, oh, I loved was, I am but legend, I, yeah. uh, ripples out into American culture over all of the 20th century and beyond. Like, for instance, there is no The Walking Dead. There is no Night of the Living Dead. There is no, um, you know, uh, The Last Man on Earth. There are all of these. We have played out different iterations and different accessory packs for I Am Legend throughout American history so much that it is, it is really in the, the spinal fluid of the country. Uh, Oh, absolutely. One, one individual who uses um, some combination of violence and science to solve the otherness that has taken over all of the world that is besieging him at all sides. That the, the DNA of that one dumb little Richard Matheson story uh, about, (laughs) about shitty complaining vampires in suburbia is so um, annoyingly relevant in 2023. It almost makes me, uh, almost makes me shit. (laughs) I got to read that again. I, you know, actually, now that I think about it, it's such a, it's, it's a weird read. I listened to it on my sojourning journey from the East coast to California. I was driving in my shitty little car and uh, (laughs) I had it open and because uh, the technology was uh, more agreeable to this, I had my laptop open and played it on audiobook for the nice. like about half of the drive because it's a long ass audiobook. Um, so uh, I recommend it <laughs> if you're going to be very, very alone for a very long time. I think it, it kind of matches the the hue of that emotional palette. I'll have to double check with my wife after we've talked about the thing again if I if I'm going to be alone for a very long time. After this. <laughs> I do want to put on a small plug for the thing, the video game from 2002. Oh my God. I I have notes. I have my notes written on it here. Um, And I'm so glad that you brought it up because it, 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 at least I maybe was going to forget, but I have a whole, I have a whole section. Um, So did you play it when it came out? Absolutely. Uh, I, I, I totally, I, I totally did. I played yeah. it. The timing for me was exactly the same. I had a PS2 and yep. um, it fucking kicked ass that game. It was amazing. It, it was, it was such a good game. What have you got? 
One body. No survivors. This is crazy. Bullshit. You're infected just like the rest of them. My men are dying out there. I've seen firsthand what this infection is capable of. Oh, you have no idea what it can do. Like my dad always said, if you want a job done right, you gotta do it yourself. Out of your league here, Blake. Whatever that studio is should really sell that to another, like CD Projekt Red or some motherfuckers, to like make a new version of that because it was definitely limited by the the animation and technological options that they had at the time. But goddamn, it was a good horror game. I don't know. I don't know if yeah. I've, you know, other than I don't know when I've played a horror game. You know, you're much more. Um, you're much more literate in a diverse palette of games than I am. I'm a, I have an extremely narrow window of gaming. I'm like intense and narrow. And you guys, <laughs> in addition to just your natural dispositions, in addition to, you know, you also make a show about games. So um, you guys have a, a much more wide context in which to place it. But I have not played enough horror games where I have like five or six of them where I just love. And that's the only one that I like really played through it. And I really like stuck to it because it was scary. It was dynamic. The play was fun. And it at yep. least to a great extent, not perfectly, but it to a great extent actually matched the tone of the material that it was imitating. Um, yeah. To, to make a super analogy there with the game imitating a game, but whatever. What stood out to you about it? Because, man, I thought that game kicked ass. I think it was great. Uh, I have not played it since. It's hard to get. I have a copy of it. Okay. Um, and and I have, a... have an Xbox 360 that theoretically I could, uh, I could play it on that. I'm kind of afraid to, though, because it, it's, it's such an old game and I imagine it hasn't aged well. Uh, and I want to I want to hold on to the good memories of it. But the thing that I remember the most about it was there were so many ways to die. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you could be yeah, you could torn apart by you know just hundreds of spider crab uh, heads everywhere. Definitely, like, just you could, you could just be immolated in all sorts of different ways. Right, man. There was a right. lot of you could there was freeze a lot of to death. To death. There was a freezing. Freeze. There was a freezing mechanic. Yeah. There's there's a the 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 mental uh, uh, like am I gonna snap kind of thing, um, I I loved it. I have so such fond memories of it, and uh, I would love to. Uh, I'd love. To, I, I probably have to now, don't I? I've been talking <laughs> well, about it now. I have you know to play what, it. Uh, Phil? Maybe we'll come up with some way where we can both play it and turn it into some kind of weird special crossover bullshit. Oh, what I a great really idea! Like we should game. we should do a Twitch stream or something. Like yeah, that. Be fun. we'll do some weird promotional. But um, do I'll, some sort of promotion. Yeah, just, cross promotion, baby. So That's how we do it. <laughs> I love it. Sell it to Kevin. Um, so to, to get it on mic, the thing, 
was a, a 2002 video game adaptation by um, Computer Artworks and Vivendi Universal Games. And it was on Windows, PS2, and Xbox. And it was a third-person squad-based horror shooter, which is a bit of a mouthful. But it actually yeah. succeeded at... Um, all of those genres, in my, at least in my opinion, where I'm, I really don't like playing first, or I'm sorry, third person games. I do not like staring at my avatar's back. I do not like uh-huh. having to shoot with my avatar. Um, I, and e- even though, even with my natural a disposition toward it, I I found the game very playable, very scary. And that it's um, the frustration arc of its winability was really exactly articulated in a way where it was both difficult and satisfying. And and yeah. it, it, it yeah. had a, a different it was scary in different ways. And the settings were odd enough and it introduced enough of that, like, is this guy a monster or is he my buddy? dynamic that actually kept it fresh and um and anxiety inducing but in a fun way does that match up with kind of how you enjoyed it or or what sticks out 100 percent uh it it was it was you know it it, it was not a flawless game it was not a game changer so to speak but they took things like a paranoia meter or a paranoia meter as I like to call it uh, and uh, or or, or cold mechanics or, uh, or or the shooting like you were talking about a smart horror movie uh, packaged as a dumb horror movie and this took that a, a step further it, it was it was way dumber uh, instead of the one <laughs> scene of a spider head, falling off of the 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 medical bench and and crawling away and getting torch you have literal dozens of them charging you yeah. uh it's just it's it's the aliens to alien basically um yeah and so you lose a little of the creep factor and gain some fucking righteous action shit uh and that's the only way to say it really yeah. uh and <laughs> but i i remember it very fondly and uh it even answered some of the questions as i recall from the film um, and it just, it was, it was a solid game and I am flabbergasted in this age of remasters and all that shit yes. that nobody has just put a, 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 a fresh coat Hon- of HD yeah, paint yeah, on yeah, this Yeah, thing. honestly, you really could take the exact same game and just, um, put it in Unreal Engine and, yeah. and recode some important elements, scrub some stuff away, change some dialogue and... And really, just do a reskinning of it into a 2023 level technology game in terms of its appearance, and oh, yeah. you could make a bajillion dollars on it because it was, you know, it's it's not a groundbreaking game, but it no. was just very solidly delivered a horror mood, which is very hard because the thing about horror is that horror is the bubbles in a champagne bottle. It only works in containment, right? There's a reason Mm. why every horror film is contained in a space. And that space, that space may be non-literal in the sense that it maybe is wherever your child is in the case of the Babadook, right? Like it doesn't necessarily have to be on the boat in the ocean with Jaws, but a lot of times it is. A lot of times it's the spaceship that the alien is on or in, in your mind when you're asleep with Freddy Krueger, the space can be, can be 
a little bit non-linear, but it means that the bubbles of danger are contained. And thus there's a limitation. And, yeah, there's a, and, there are gates with, holding you in. All of that to say, it's so hard to translate into a game because a game always unwinds in space and time over a long stretch. A, a, yes. a, a game, unless you're playing Altered Beast, never like half lasts like half an hour or not even ninety minutes. You know what I mean? A game has oh, to have yeah. those dozens, if not hundreds, of hours of playability. So to be able to take something that functions in the contained champagne bottle and uncork it and shake it out over, I don't know how many hours that game would be in terms of mean playability, but it's got to be easily 100 hours of playability, that game, no problem. Um, oh, sure. The, the fact that they keep building up the bubble of tension and, and deflating it, building it up and deflating it, means that it really required some crafting that I have not, I, I just haven't seen that much in, in gaming. So um, yeah, it's not. I I'm glad that you're there to validate my obviously prejudiced uh, uh, perspective <laughs> because I'm such a thingophile that you know enjoying the game you know seems like I you know people are like yeah okay you like the thing game of course duh but like I I didn't expect actually I expected it to be if anything disappointing because I really hate adaptions of my favorite things it's um yeah it's a theme in my life like i don't fucking no, no i don't no, like that fucking 2011 they're... piece of trash and i would have liked to have liked it but i cannot tell you one goddamn thing about that movie other than uh, that it's... lady was the star and the cgi was bad it's so funny because i'm with you you it, it used to be that I, I guess that maybe it's an age thing. Cause I remember when I was young, I found out there's going to be an X-Men movie. They're going to make a goddamn X-Men movie. And you know, of course this is before the oversaturation of comic book movies and, and all that, but like there was excitement to it. Oh, I can't well, that wait was very to see early, it. That first X-Men movie. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but, but, but now I found out, they're doing an adaptation of my favorite book. They're, uh, it's it's not, it's not even really a popular book. It's uh, uh, this book called Straight Man by Richard Russo. He's famous for a bunch of other books, but not this one. But it's my favorite book. And they're making a series with Bob Odenkirk called Lucky Hank about it. Oh. And Bob you, I've read, I've literally read this book like 13 or 14 times. Oh, wow. I love it's It's just one of my, it's just a satisfying comedy taking place in a college English department. It's funny. It's sad. It's just a very, very satisfying book. And I saw the trailers for it just last week. And you would think I would be excited. And all yeah, I could yeah, think, yeah. I was just filled with dread, filled with dread. <laughs> yeah, I, that's no, I really feel that. I really feel that. I've mentioned on the show before, so the audience will be familiar with this meme, but you may not be aware. I have a recurring series of nightmares where I go into a weird novelty shop um, and I am confronted with a series of action figures that are very confusing. <laughs> and okay. that's the, to <laughs> and that's the totality of the nightmare. There, there is no, there is no like doll coming to life and murdering me, but I, it is just, my brain has decided that this is my boogeyman. <laughs> And the problem That's with this, the problem with this being my boogeyman is now this happens in real life <laughs> because, because of the, the 
the juxtapositional state that our culture is in that you will go to a you'll go to a music store because there are still music stores in the world and there will be a Funko Pop for the Joker Batman you know, right thing or you know like bizarro wonder woman or zombie captain america and i'm like why is this actually happening to me in real time and i'm not actually yeah. afraid of it it's just you know how your brain can turn anything into a nightmare by just putting it into a nightmare and you're like that's not objectively yep. frightening but my frightening chemicals are going off while you're showing this to me so i guess i'm frightened of it now so thanks yeah, to Yeah, you don't know why you're unsettled. Thank, but you yeah, and thanks to my are. unconscious conditioning, I am frightened of confusing juxtapositions of toys. <laughs> <laughs> and it is just such a dumb, absurd thing. And so uh, this thing that should give me a massive source of joy is just an odd, like looking at it askance from the other side of the room anxiety. Yeah. And yeah. and that that looking through my Stephen King peripheral vision is also the way that I look at like the second or third Venom movie where I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know you got Tom Hardy to star in these, but how come you keep fucking up the whole story every time? You know, like I like this should be my favorite thing in the world. This should be Tom Hardy in Mad Max, not Tom Hardy in Venom. You know, like I, you know, To create a, you know, a point counterpoint of Tom Hardy is good in this thing that is my favorite thing in the world and this other favorite thing in the world I fucking hate because you don't know how to do Eddie Brock right or you do Eddie Brock right, but you don't do the rest of the world around him right because you're bad at writing villains, whoever this is. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, no, I I would say that I approach more more things that are connected to my favorite things with absolute dread by a factor of easily four or five to one than I uh, approach oh, wow. them with joy. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like um like Blade Runner 2049, for instance. I that was a source of maximum anxiety for me for a long was time. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. I did not want to have any knowledge about it and now I am happy to report that I am at worst ambivalent about um, Blade Runner 2049. It is a enjoyable film that does not, it does not, um, it does not correct, it does not caress my scrotum in the way that the original Blade Runner does. And sure, go like, look not. at yeah. these fascinating implications about the robot peoples. <laughs> but it is a good, quote unquote, a good movie where it does yeah. not totally trash everything that I liked about the original. Therefore, yeah, they could have done a, a lot worse with that kind of a beloved uh, franchise. It could have been a lot worse. Yes. I, it is It is allowed to carry on past its expiration date and uh, eventually be lost like tears in rain, like everything else. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, he now, referenced the movie, you guys. He was in the movie, everybody. He referenced the movie. It's some high literary criticism, everybody. <laughs> it's like fucking dare or die over here. <laughs> Master at arms, take that man below and clap him in irons. Now is the point of the show, Phil, where we have to ask, is the, the thing from the 1938 novella, Who Goes There? <laughs> Is it, is it, is it, is it, is it Bitchin' Van Art? <laughs> Bitchin' Van Art. 
gonna hand this one to you because you're gonna be one of my rare guests that totally grasps the concept of the bit. So, uh, what do you think, Phil? Yeah. What do you think? I, I'm I can't I I can't say it's bitchin' van art. I, oh, I, no, it is I a. Think I, no. As it's as it's visually depicted in the in the novella, it's kind of a, a kind of a slappy, almost me, frozen Medusa kind of uh, uncanny valley uh, creepy creepy guy. <laughs> you know, it's a it's, it's a it's I very know. tough to make plants metal. You know what I mean? You I've that's there you go. There's your tagline right there, everybody. <laughs> N- nailed it in one. Nailed it in one. <laughs> um, and that brings us to the end of our time with you, dear reader. Until next time when we deliver you another batch of beasts, bullywugs, and bowls of flesh-eating dessert fluff. That's the section where Gavin tells you to go check out his stuff. Go check Gavin Longshanks on Twitch. He's probably doing stuff there. I don't really know exactly when it comes out. It comes out, but I don't know when. Share an episode on social media. If you got a monster suggestion, get us at oopsallmonsters at gmail.com. If you want to toss a coin of the potion fund, hit us up with a one-shot contribution at paypal.me slash oopsallmonsters. Or, if you're feeling uh, a little bit more thingy, patreon.com slash oopsallmonsters hoops all monsters to support us in an ongoing fashion lastly i have to thank my wonderful friend katie for our incredible theme song her work as part of the duo the darling kathleen's can be found on youtube at the darling kathleen's and with that i have been hess and phil thank you so incredibly much for coming on for this this supersized i knew it was going to be supersized the whole time because you and i are not good at shutting the fuck up um, <laughs> how, how would how could it be anything but with you and me, dude? I just don't see how that was possible. No, if if if, if podcasts, if anything, and I said, you know, I pontificated earlier about maybe my favorite thing about podcasts is they cause me to delve deeper into subjects that I have, you know, a, a moderate or super superficial relationship with, and actually develop something that has a, a, a more accurately called expertise about them. about things that I love. And the other one is that it forces me to have conversations with people (laughs) that I like that I haven't talked to in a long time about my favorite subjects. So isn't that nice? Yeah. It's way better than other things. It's 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 way better than other things. Way better than most other things. You know, you go to the you go to the weird uh, you go to the weird southern gas station and they got that like weird grainy peanut butter fudge right there next to the cashier and you're like oh yeah it's better than that stuff you know mm-hmm. sometimes it's real good but usually it's not it's 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 rarely what you want but uh you're gonna eat it so i've been hess and this has been phil phil tell us how to get at Pixelit or any other thing that you would like us to get at Oh, absolutely. You guys, uh, please uh, subscribe and or listen to uh, Pixelit. You can find us at Pixelit Pod on Twitter, uh, pixelitpod.com. You can listen to it there. You can find us anywhere that podcasts are processed and uh, uh, turned into delicious rendered lard for your ear holes. Um, you can find <laughs> me on Twitter at El Conquistador. Uh, that is El Conquistador with a K at the end because that was that was the level of clever I was working with in my late twenties. Yep. And uh, yeah, that's that's my that's my my spiel. Yeah, check Kevin and Phil out at Pixelit. 
It's genuinely very funny. If you like video games or you like books, there will be an episode for you. And uh, and I don't, I recommend so few things. Just take my word for it. Um, <laughs> he's he's right. It's true. That's been Will <laughs> and I've been Hess. And we, in this case, have been a very off format version of Oops, All Monsters. All right. See you next time, everybody. <laughs>